Hello and welcome to the Katie Halper Show. On this episode, I chat with a little girl, as well as Leslie Lee, Roger Waters of Pink Floyd, and Stephen Donziger. Stephen Donziger is a human rights lawyer who helped Ecuador's Amazon win a historic $9.5 billion judgment against Chevron for the deliberate dumping of billions of gallons of cancer-causing oil waste onto indigenous ancestral lands. Chevron responded to this record-breaking settlement by going after Donziger using at least 60 law firms and 2,000 lawyers. Donziger appealed an unprecedented order from trial judge Louis A. Kaplan, who, by the way, is a former tobacco industry lawyer, that Donziger turn over his computer and phone for review by Chevron lawyers. This violates attorney-client privilege. As his appeal of this order was pending, Judge Kaplan charged him with criminal contempt. The federal prosecutor in Manhattan rejected the case, but Judge Kaplan then appointed the Chevron law firm Seward and Kissel to prosecute Donziger. The Seward firm failed to disclose until seven months into the case that Chevron is a client of theirs. And Stephen has been kept under house arrest without trial for over 650 days. What's interesting is that he's been under house arrest for more than six times longer than the longest sentence ever imposed in New York on a lawyer convicted of contempt. The judge appointed by Kaplan to preside over this case is part of the Federalist Society. She's denied Donziger a jury. This is so outrageous, in fact, that 68 Nobel laureates have asked the Department of Justice to probe Chevron's prosecution of Donziger. It's really shameful that the media has not been covering this. Not surprisingly. The latest news, by the way, is that transcripts from the Chevron-funded prosecution show Judge Preska ruled against his attorneys 99% of the time when they objected. Wow. You can find out more about Steve at donzigerdefense.com. You can also go to freedonziger.org and follow him on Twitter at sdonziger. everyone. Welcome to the Katie Helper Show. I'm here with, obviously, Leslie Lee, but who else am I here with today? Say your name, your first name only. Nina. Nina. How old are you, Nina? Six and a half. You're so squirmy, Nina. Can't you just sit down? I should talk, right? I think <laughs> Nina was a lot like me. Oh my God, Nina. All right. <laughs> Nina, you're going to tell people who the guests are today, okay? Ready? I'll tell you who they are. Ready? Steven Donziger. And. Oh, great. Roger Waterson. Just Roger Waters, no son. Just Roger Waters. Roger Waters. Okay, cool. What do you think of politics? Who do you like? What politicians? Um, Bernie. Okay, why do you like him? He would give health care for nothing. You're right. Anything else you yeah. like about him? He would save our people. And make sure everybody would get masks and do everything he could to save us. Yeah. What else? What else are you thinking about lately? Anything? Well, I've been thinking about that. Why? If we have two choices, we have to make the first one. What are the two choices? The two choices is Biden. Trump. Oh, right. That right. So it was first it was Bernie and Biden. And you liked which one? <laughs> I liked Bernie. Great. Then what happened? Then, then Bernie got kicked out, and now it was Biden and Trump. Right. And so what did what did you have, feel like you had to do? 
I feel like I felt like that I had to I had to root for Biden and my parents did too. Right. But not this with the same excitement, right? As they would have for Bernie or they did with yes. Bernie. Yes. We didn't very like Biden, but I had my own politics and I said <laughs> Biden was a little good. Oh, okay. Well, got it. You made your own politics. How'd you get your own politics? Don't touch the mic because it makes noise. How'd you get your own politics? I just listened to his speeches and said, maybe he's not that bad after all. Okay. By the way, I forgot to introduce you, Nina, to my friend Leslie. He's a very good friend of mine. You want? There he is. You want to say hi to him? Hi. Hi, Nina. So nice to meet you. You too. Leslie has a really <laughs> cute dog named Taco. Oh, yes. Taco. Taco. Come here. Let me see if we can get Taco on. I have a cat, but I'm not at my house. Right. Nina's also a very good singer-songwriter. Oh, yes, I heard. Yeah, I'm actually starting a band. Nina. Named after Nina Simone. She's not mine, but she is a friend, and I love hanging out with her. Okay, they talk. someone wrote Mini Katie. It's really <laughs> funny because my um, mom jokingly <laughs> said... Can I, I'm going to tell the joke without the names. So let's say Nina's parents are named John and Mary, right? So I'm sitting with John and Mary and Nina, and my mom is there, and John and Mary are Nina's parents, right? And Nina's performing, and my mom says, I hate to say it, but I think John had a kid with Katie. Meaning like, because <laughs> I, I was so much like you, Nina, when you were a kid. When I was a kid. So Nina said she had her own politics. And what else? Anything else you want to share with us? I'm sorry I can't be on more than this time, but I um, I really want to be here. <laughs> so you'll come back, right? Yeah. Bye. Say bye. Say thanks for listening to the Katie Helper thanks Show. For, thanks for listening to the KB ha- Caper House. Katie Helper Show. Katie Helper Show. Say join the Patreon. Join the Patreon. At <laughs> patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. At patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Katie Helper Show. All right. Great. Thanks, Nina. Oh, Signing great. off. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Wow. So nice That's- to meet you. <laughs> Bye. Wow. Nina, you got us a donation. Yay. But in all seriousness, guys, we do have a great show for you today. It's actually a very exciting show. And first of all, let me just take a moment to welcome everyone. This is a Katie Halper show. I'm Katie Halper. This is Leslie Lee, host of his own amazing show called Struggle Session. Yeah, I'm uh, happy to be here on Thursdays as always. But I mean, I, I say this every week, but your booker is just absolutely amazing. The show we have for you today, the energy, the excitement, my God. How I wish, how I wish you were here. Yeah. It's just an absolutely beautiful show that we have with wonderful guests, big news, big stars, all on the Katie Hopper show. Here's the thing, guys. Ready? Let me just center myself. We have two amazing, amazing guests. Well, we already had one. So we have two more amazing guests. They are Roger Waters and... Steve Donziger. Now, who you may ask is Roger Waters. I'll tell you who Roger Waters is. <laughs> I kept calling him Roger Stone by accident. In fact, I think a couple of weeks ago I, I streamed and I called him that. But Roger Waters is from that band, that great band, Pink Floyd, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, just making sure. Sometimes well, I confuse I mean, them. And- it may be understating it to say that great band, Pink Floyd, because there's a number of people uh, who believe that they are the greatest band, the great band, the greatest band of all time, in large part due to Roger Waters' 
legendary contribution. I mean, there's nothing you can say about Pink Floyd that hasn't already been said. Your favorite band's favorite band was probably Pink I Floyd. See. I know mine was with uh, the Smashing Pumpkins. Oh, they wow. were that, you know, they were, I mean, they were just so huge. Their music still endures to this day. I was listening to some now and it just feels, still feels, you know, fresh. It's just, but the thing is, I didn't learn about Roger Waters from Pink Floyd. I learned about him from his activism all the way back since I was a kid. Every time I heard about Roger Waters, I was hearing about Palestine, you know. So that's a, another amazing thing to build that amazing career and then shift to picking these struggles and struggles that no one else is willing to fight. I mean, we've already seen some people can't even get one tweet out about Palestine without yeah, having to backtrack. Very upsetting. Hulk. We have two courageous fighters on here, but let's talk about the Hulk, Mark Ruffalo, a little bit. So, Mark Ruffalo, I didn't see his initial uh, post that people praise. I mean, I think Mark, in general, Mark Mark seems like a really good guy with good politics, but he blinked on this one. Um, as has happened with a number of celebrities, he tweeted something that was too pro-Palestine and too critical of Israel, and he got the word he got the calls and he took them and you know kind of walked it back and said no this isn't a genocide and saying that contributes to anti-semitism and i mean the, i mean the big problem is as you see the narrative has shifted from the slaughter of palestinians to this uh, to anti-semitism caused by people talking about the slaughter of palestinians yes talking you know, about the hulk it's so sad because he's great he's got great politics did you did you let me i'll read the the tweet because it's very unfortunate ruffalo one of the best also mark you still have a seat at the table <laughs> this table so we still want you to come on so okay this is what mark ruffalo tweeted I have reflected and wanted to apologize for posts during the recent Israel-Hamas fighting that suggested Israel is committing genocide, in quotes, genocide. It's not accurate. It's inflammatory, disrespectful, and is being used to justify anti-Semitism here and abroad. Now is the time to avoid hyperbole. Okay. Now, here's what I tweeted as an ally. Okay. In fact, I made it very clear in my tweet that I was being an ally. Respectfully sharing this with you, Mark Ruffalo. And then JP Live, which is Jewish Voice for Peace. Recently, there's been a lot of discussion about the word genocide. In 2013, Michael Ratner, preeminent legal scholar, charged Israel with committing incremental genocide against the Palestinian people. While there has been recent criticism of those taking the position that Israel is committing genocide against Palestinians, there's a long history of human rights scholarship and legal analysis that supports the assertion. Prominent scholars of the International Law Crime of Genocide and Human Rights Authorities take the position that Israel's policies towards the Palestinian people could constitute a form of genocide. These policies range from the 1948 mass killings and displacement of Palestinians to a half century of military occupation and, correspondingly, the discriminatory legal regime governing Palestinians. Repeated military assaults on Gaza and official Israeli statements expressly favoring the elimination of Palestinians. Yeah, it, certainly by that definition, it is, and it's just it seems such I, I don't know, kind of silly to even like quibble about it. Like, right to say, oh, it was just ethnic cleansing. Yeah, it's just it's just a minor right. ethnic cleansing. It's just it's just an ongoing occupation and open right. air prison based on ethnicity religion wherever you want to uh say what it is yeah yeah i i don't even know it's such a weird thing like we're actually we're not doing genocide we're doing everything else right but we're not right. doing genocide 
Coming just short of it. That's a little harsh. <laughs> That's a little harsh, yeah. So, Mark, we're calling on you because you are a mensch, and we're calling on you to listen to Center Jewish Voices, Center the Jewish Voices of Michael Ratner and all the other Jews like Betselem, the human rights organization, Jewish Israeli calls it apartheid. I'm just really angry that Mark Ruffalo is pressured to take down a statement calling genocide genocide while Deborah Messing is allowed to push heinous, racist, Islamophobic, genocidal talking points. That carousel that she put out? That carousel, Is that what, yeah. The carousel, yeah, we talked about last Yeah, we week. talked Absolutely. about that, and she still hasn't apologized. And I had Jeff Halper, no relation. I had Jeff Halper on the show who said, of course there's ethnic cleansing. How could you make, how could you found Israel without ethnic cleansing? Of course there's ethnic cleansing. It was 90% of the people there were not Jewish. And then it becomes a Jewish state, how? Abracadabra. Anyway, I think you all know where Leslie and I fall in this position. Both of us believe that any criticism of Israel is absolutely fundamentally anti-Semitic. I'm just kidding. In fact, I'm going to say, I've said it before on the show, I'm going to say it again. The allegation that it's anti-Semitic to criticize Israel is in itself anti-Semitic. Yes. Because it suggests that all Jews have this are monolith with the same blind support for Israel. They'll say the Zionist this, the Zionist that. So the people who are conflating Jewish identity with Zionism are actually perpetuating this anti-Semitic trope. It's not a good look, I'm going to say, for my people. It's not a good look for me. It isn't. It feeds into another trope, another stereotype. Sorry, guys. This is, again, this is the Katie Halper Show, very informal. When our guests are ready, they can give me the thumbs up and we'll bring them in. Okay, great. We got we got three thumbs up. That's how excited they are. We won't tell you which one gave two and which one gave one, but so extremely excited to bring into the show human rights lawyer, Stephen Donziger, who is joining us from, predictably, his home because he's under house arrest. Human rights lawyer who took on Chevron and is being really persecuted for it. And legendary musician and activist, Roger Waters. So welcome, gentlemen. Hello. Katie. Oh, my angel. Nice to see you again. It's been too long. Yeah. Roger was kind enough to come on Useful Idiots, and it was a great show. That was when you were with that weird bloke. That weird bloke, yeah. Maybe, yeah. Yeah, Don't worry about that. That's all right. And this is another, he's not a weird bloke. He's a, what would you, wholesome, wholesome bloke, Leslie Lee. Thank you. I don't even know what to say. <laughs> I, I don't know what to say. Right, well, um, you're, I, I, but thank you so much for uh, coming on. Thank you so much for your activism and your tireless activism. And you, Stephen, too, I was reading your story and just, you know, it's absolutely amazing um, what you've gone through and the forces you're fighting against. I'm just so honored to be talking to both of you. Thank you, Leslie. Thank you. Roger, just quickly, Leslie was saying before that he actually knew of you first as an activist yes. and then as a musician. And then, but, and you were a big influence on his, what was your favorite band, Leslie? It was the, the Smashing, Smashing Pumpkins? Pumpkins. And I learned about your music from the Smashing Pumpkins, but I learned about you because of your activism when I was young, hearing about you were the first person you, who I hear talking about Palestine. And sadly, a lot of When you were young, you're a puppy. <laughs> yeah. man. But it's just so amazing that you had this wonderful music career, but then you dedicate your life, you know, mm. to service and helping people. I think that's I really was very lucky. That was a lucky thing. I knew that one day I wanted to grow up and become Steve Donziger's puppy, and now yeah. I am. <laughs> you know, we always argue because I want to. I want to have his job, and he claims he wants to have my job. You know? right. I don't <laughs> want your job. Are you crazy? 
<laughs> well, I don't have a job. I'm going to take your job for all the tea in China, fighting <laughs> against these effing assholes at Chevron and Exxon and the whole U.S. government and Joe Biden, all the rest of the ratbags. I don't want your job, brother. I really don't. I'm happy. I'm just a simple bass player, okay? And I'm happy with that. I would love to actually hear, can you guys share how you met each other, how you heard about each other? When did we meet? I tell you, I'm going to tell this story, may I? Yeah. Oh, it's up to you. Yeah. I was, uh, no, I was asking him. He's yeah, my Yeah, I know. Master. I realize that. I realize yeah. that, yeah. Oh, you go. I was, um, it's the only time I've ever pretended to be an actor, okay? And I was pretending to be an actor off Broadway, working for adorable friend of mine called Bob Balaban, famous actor and film director and all the rest of it. The exonerated. He yes. put on the exonerated about the death penalty, that about all these exonerated me. people. I was in it. You were? He did you me were the one- great honor of saying, do you want to be in it? And I said, are you fucking stupid? I'm not an actor. And he went, no, I, I, you know, I do you know Bob. He's very quiet and studious. And incredibly charming and one of the most wonderful, lovable people that you could ever hope to meet. So he came round to my house and he gave me the script. He said, you're somebody called Gary Gorger. You've been accused of a capital crime and you're about to be executed. This is your story. Do you think you could do it? I said, fucking, I don't know, Bob. And he went, well, pretend you're acting. So I did. And he went, you're a natural. And I thought, you lying swine. But I didn't. <laughs> refused to do it I went I'll tell you why I didn't because I've always thought that I had one part in me but I've always thought that it was to play a high court justice at the old Bailey or some I sort of see myself in a long wig with a pair of pince-nez on my nose (coughs) coughing a bit and then you know and then I will get my one line which will be take the prisoner down And that's sort of where I was hoping for that. But this was pretending to be a real person who was about to be executed. And so... The opposite. Anyway, I was sitting next to Kathleen Turner. Is that... No, that's not her name. The actress? I'll remember her name. Wonderful, wonderful actress who was sitting next to me for seven nights. And then one night she couldn't do it. So they wheeled in... Um, an understudy, and the understudy was Trudy Styler, the famous producer of movies and also wife of that well-known, what's Loke. his name, always wears a rugby shirt in the photographs. You know who I mean, anyway. Stinger, Stung. Exactly, Sting. Stingray. Yeah, Stingray, and, yeah. And, um, and uh, so we acted for an hour and a bit, and then we had a bit of a boogaloo afterwards because Clive Stafford-Smith, the well-known guy who started Reprieve and whatever, came down and, and it was a bit of a party. And then Trudy said, let's go and have dinner at somewhere or other. And I went, yeah, all right. And he was there, young Donziger. And this was back in 2012, I think, some, somewhere around there anyway. And so obviously we started to talk about Ecuador and about, the fact that he was representing these people and where it was all going and what. And, of course, I knew nothing about it. It's like that weird moment in your life when something's going on and you know nothing about it and it's complete news to you. But it's life and death to them. This is where they live and they're living day to day having these billions of gallons of toxic waste dumped on them into their lives and have been since 1961 or sometime when Texaco, who were the company who actually did it, started doing it. 
Well, in 2012, you'd been involved for about, what, 12 years or something, 11 or 12 years by then? No, you've been, how, how long have you been in what, since 1991? 19, 19. I started in 1993. There you go. You, had Rogers describing a dinner where, by that time I had met Trudy, because she had been to Ecuador a couple of times to check it out and help. So she, we, became, we had become friends, and I met Roger through Trudy at this dinner, and we talked a lot and seemed to have a lot in common. <laughs> We've since become pretty good friends. I'd say actually quite good friends over the years yeah. and to the point where I actually convinced Roger when he was on tour in Latin America a couple of years ago, he had a stop in Colombia and Bogota. And I said, hey, that's like next door. Get on a plane and come meet me and we'll go down to the jungle, which he proceeded to do. And it was one of the biggest events that year in the whole country of Ecuador, Roger Waters coming. And the fact he took the time to visit the victims of Chevron's pollution was extraordinary. And the next day he held a press conference in Quito. And I've been going to Ecuador for 25 years. I mean, I've probably had a hundred press conferences in Quito. And this one had, I've never seen so many journalists at a press conference in Ecuador. There must've been 500 journalists. And Roger- It's the way I play the bass, man. No, no, no. You know what it is like? He was so smart, like the way he talked about the case. And I'm like, at the end, I'm like, you could have been a barrister. Uh, like, you know, it's just crazy. He's really, he's incredibly smart, man, when it comes to his legal issues. Yeah. And he knows a little bit about music and entertaining and choreography and meaning of life. Lenin Moreno, yeah. okay, who was the president of Ecuador at the time, tried to prevent my plane from landing. That was crazy. That was Really? Yeah. And then when it did land at Quito, he then they then I was told politely by the officials there, you cannot fly to I can never remember if it's Lago Agrio. Lago. Lago Agrio. Lago Agrio, yeah. The town. You cannot fly to Lago Agrio. We will not give you permission. We've allowed they didn't want me to land. They let me land. They said so I said, could I talk to, and I was very polite, and I asked if I could speak to somebody from what passes for the FAA or whatever in Ecuador. And so they said I could, and I got this nice chap on the phone. I explained to him that I was going to make a frightfully loud noise if they didn't let me fly to Lago. And they said, well, you can then, but you can't take that bastard Dunziger with you because he is a thorn in our sides, and he is definitely not going. And I went, right, well, get ready for the pain in the side because either Donziga comes with me or I'm making a huge fucking noise about this or whatever. And they went, just a minute, Mr. Waters, we come back to you. And, they said, and they went and had a word with Lenin Moreno or his, I, whoever it was, but right. I know we were in, you know, in contact with them. And they went, we've changed our minds. Donziga can go, for God's sake, be quick and don't make any noise and fuck off. So we did, and it was incredibly moving. You know, when you when you get off a plane and walk out and there's like, what were there, Stephen? About 100, 100 indigenous people standing there in the courtyard. And they were all like these women who came up to sort of just above my navel. And I was, I was seriously overcome uh, with emotion with, with these people who really didn't know me from Adam. And there's no reason why they should, but just to be given a voice of some kind. You know, 
Don't for, let us not forget, they'd won a judgment against Chevron Corporation for $9.5 billion. And these motherfuckers had said, we're not paying you a single cent. Leave us alone. We are Chevron. We're a big fossil fuel company and we are powerful. You will not want to be around when we start spending money through Gibson Dunn and the corrupt fucking judges on the South Circuit in New York because the shit is going to fly and you're all dead. That's kind of what they said. And he, luckily, went, hmm, that doesn't sound like the kind of law I learned at Harvard Law School. What is this? Oh, is this a banana? Are we living in a banana republic, you know, with kangaroo courts? The answer we discovered, obviously, was yes, we are. And that's why he's wearing an ankle bracelet around his ankle. 660 days into, he's going to show there it is. Oh, you took it off. Are you going to get into trouble now? Oh, that's the cover. Yeah, this is not the, the bracelet is on my leg 24 7. This is the battery that I slide to the side of it to charge it. Wow happens to be on that but it's like the same size as this like a garage door opener and never right. leave you know it. what katie i'm sorry to interrupt but th- we are this is we're excited now because chevron and exxon had their agms when yesterday Stephen. yeah tell them what happened at their AGM. yeah i was gonna say please update us on the latest well, they, have, they got they got first of all thank you for having us on i love roger leslie mm-hmm. pleasure to meet you katie you're great journalists Basically, I've been going to Chevron or monitoring them, their shareholder meetings for really 15, 20 years because the Ecuador case always comes up. I have never seen the fossil fuel industry get spanked between Exxon and Chevron like it did yesterday. I mean, every resolution got overwhelming support from shareholders about reports on net carbon admissions, on cleaning up Ecuador. You know, Exxon, this this small hedge fund placed two uh, climate activists on the Exxon board. I mean, this has never happened before. And I... I, This was a a shareholders meeting? I'm sorry, I didn't set this... ATM, annual general meeting. Shareholders put forth resolutions to force management to change policies, or in this case, around climate change. And it's, it's a really fascinating thing to watch, you know, part of our securities laws require one of these a year and any shareholder, even if you own one share of stock, you can put up a resolution. And what's ended up happening is because of the work of a lot of people over many years, like it's reached a crescendo, I'd say a tipping point where the management of these big companies, Exxon, Chevron, are losing their grip. They're losing power. You know, Exxon, they're losing money. Exxon has been removed from the, you know, the Dow Jones, you know, big company index. Chevron is hurting in many ways. And they're really hurting because they're in a death industry like tobacco. I mean, what they do is get oil out of the ground. In Chevron's case, in Ecuador and other places, they leave billions of gallons of toxic waste in the environment, killing off indigenous peoples um, while they're destroying the planet because of fossil fuels. So, You know, I think if we lived in a just world, our government should nationalize the entire fossil fuel industry and phase it out, because if we don't do that, we're all going to die. You know, I have a particular story because we won this big lawsuit against Chevron on behalf of indigenous peoples in Ecuador, $9.5 billion, and they refused to pay. And they're attacking me. You know, I'm probably the target of the largest, well, most well-financed corporate retaliation campaign ever. Been in house arrest for two years on a misdemeanor, haven't been convicted of a crime. 
but it's it's there's a vicious battle going on. And yesterday was a, a momentous victory for citizens who want to deal with the climate issue. I mean, I just can't tell you. It's just awesome to watch. So this is perfect timing because we have you right after this victory. It's perfect. It's perfect timing. We are sending a message to Randy Musto and all the other scumbags at Gibson Dunn who've been fighting this battle on behalf of That's Chevron's law firm that they've made millions by locking me up. But last year, Roger directly addressed the CEO of Chevron, Mike Worth, in the shareholder meeting. You can see the video on online. But you know, because of COVID, this year and last year, the shareholder meetings were via Zoom. And the shareholders who sponsored the resolutions made videos last year with Roger and Alec Baldwin. This year, Susan Sarandon did one, but they're powerful videos that confront, you know, Chevron's CEO with the really the atrocity of deliberately dumping billions of gallons of toxic waste into, into the Amazon and refusing to abide by a court order that it clean it up. And just so, I mean, people, I think We've been covering this story, Useful Idiots. I brought it up here. I've been tweeting about it. Obviously, you two have. Mm-hmm. But in case people aren't aware, this is basically because Stephen was what you've been locked up for without being convicted is being in contempt of court for not handing over private communications, right? Yeah, computer and cell phone to Chevron. And it's un- the order that I do so is unprecedented in U.S. history. I mean, lawyers do not turn over their internal communications and confidential communications to adversary counsel in the middle of a case, you know. So I'm being targeted by Chevron. I'm being prosecuted, not by the government, but by a Chevron law firm named Seward and Kittle. I mean, there's a lot of extraordinary features to what's happening to me that raise really disturbing questions about our judicial system. Which is... I mean, I can get into Details if yeah. you want, but I'm no, I mean, up. I was going to say one of the most shocking things, and then Leslie, of course, if you have any questions, I'll throw, throw to you. But one of the, the most shocking things about this case to me as an outsider who doesn't you know, have a law degree, but has watched a lot of law and order. But one of the most shocking things to me is that they refused to prosecute you, right? The prosecutors would not prosecute you. And the judge had to go and get a, a firm to prosecute you? A private law firm to prosecute me. And then he hid the fact that the firm he chose, I mean, he could have chosen a lot of different former federal prosecutors to prosecute me, but he chose one that has Chevron as a client. I mean, it's the most extraordinary thing. That's why we say this is the first corporate prosecution in U.S. history. I'm being prosecuted by Chevron. If you were in my trial, Roger was in my trial last week. It was a, it was a farce. I mean, there was no jury. The judge is a leader. Loretta Preska is a leader of the Federalist Society. Chevron's a major donor. My prosecutor, Rita Glavin, comes from a Chevron law firm. And the charging judge, Lou Kaplan, whose charges were rejected by the normal federal prosecutor, has investments in a mutual fund that has investments in Chevron. I mean, I was in like, your trial, Stephen. I'm going to interrupt you. I was in yeah. your trial in 2014, February 2014, in the in the civil RICO. The RICO talking about the RICO trial, the underlying. Right. Yeah, exactly. Which is, but but this is all part fundamentally. This is the fundamental question. Do we want to live in a world where everybody has recourse to the law? I do. Yeah. I really do. The law has taken us a long time to develop, okay? It goes back way beyond 
Runnymede, which was 1214 to 1297 when Magna Carta was written and when we started to figure out how to whittle down the power of the kings and the barons and the whatever. But so we've now arrived at a place and we eventually arrived at habeas corpus, for instance, which is a fundamental tenet. It's actually Article 29 of the Magna Carta, okay, which says that um, no man shall be imprisoned save that his case is heard by a jury of his peers. That's roughly what Article 29 is. Well, that's been thrown out of the window. In the United States of America, habeas corpus disappeared with the invasion of Iraq or with 9-11 or with with, um, whatever the – what am I trying to say? George Bush? No, I'm talking about the Patriot Act and the the amendments – 2021 and 2022, the amendments to the Patriot Act. Of course. I was just going to say those numbers. Of course you were, Katie. I knew you were about to say it. I'm going to wait now until you say the rest of what I was going to say. No, no. (laughs) I'm going to go for it. So those amendments say that at the behest of the commander-in-chief, who up until very recently was a bloke called Donald Trump, you know, who I wouldn't let feed my fucking dog, you know, because he's not to be trusted. But – at his whim, upon his say-so, could lock any of us up forever without even making a phone call. This is, in, this is written law in the United States of America. So you could say that this case where you let people with a lot of money trample roughshod over people who haven't got any money at all, which is his 30,000 clients in Ecuador in the rainforest, but the people who've got a lot of money and can pay Gibson Dunn and their hired hands are allowed to have their way. So the law is for the rich. Boom. End of story. Well, this is wrong. And this is what we, the people, are fighting against. I know you are. I know Leslie is. And we too are as well. But this is what we have to galvanize people to do is to say, no, this is wrong. Everyone must have recourse to the law all over the world, irrespective of their race, color, creed, religion, nationality, blah, 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 blah. That is why we're here. All right, I finished my little speech. (laughs) No, it was good. Got me riled up. Leslie, do you have a question? Yeah, yeah. So, Stephen, I mean, your story is so bizarre, and there's almost zero chance that this won't be a movie at some point, just because it's so bizarre, but... So basically, they're trying to accuse you. The underlying accusation is that you are more or less a a sort of a lawyer slash cartel leader who is also crazy, too, because I saw some of the defenders, some of the people saying, oh, this Steve, he's a kook. He doesn't know he's like, what is like? What is the underlying accusation against you? Because it sounds completely ridiculous, like you orchestrated this big multi-billion dollar judgment against Chevron. Somehow you were able to do that. And yet you've been all, even with all your power and, you know, connections, you're under house arrest by, by them. That doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. I mean, what I tell people, first of all, I'm an ethical person and I've never had a client complaint in 30 years of law practice. The only complaint I've had is from Chevron and its allies. Okay. And it's because we won the judgment in Ecuador. I tell people, and I believe this to be true, if I didn't exist, Chevron would have to invent me. They need a person to focus attention on so that people do not 
think about the environmental crimes they committed in Ecuador against the indigenous people. So they want everyone to think about Steve Donziger and not think about the fact they lost a $10 billion case in the court of their choosing where they accepted jurisdiction and they refused to pay the money because they're fundamentally grifters and they don't want to pay judgments that they lose. So instead of paying the people of Ecuador that they poisoned, and trust me, this was not an accident. The courts found that this was done by design. The pollution was done by design. Instead, they're spending two, three billion dollars on 60 law firms and 2000 lawyers to attack me and other people. I mean, it's a moral outrage. It's unethical. I believe it's illegal. I think it's one of the more sordid and disgusting examples of corporate misconduct in our history. But it's happening, and I'm partly, I'm one of the victims of it. Compared to my clients, I probably have it pretty good, at least in my house. I mean, many of my clients in Ecuador have died of cancer or are suffering from cancer and they can't get medical treatment. They can't get clean water. People need to understand, like, here where we live, you need water, at least you can go to your sink and turn on the faucet. That doesn't happen down in the Amazon. People rely on rivers and streams and groundwater for their water. And all of that was poisoned by Texaco, now Chevron, as part of a deliberate design to save money. And so many people have died. And you can't really live in this area now without drinking you know, contaminated water or eating contaminated food or breathing contaminated air. You're, the people there are getting walloped multiple times a day with these exposures, many are dying. And it's all because Chevron A did it and did it to save money to make, to increase their profits even higher. And B, they won't comply with court judgments to clean it up. Instead, they attack lawyers like me and get us locked up through private corporate prosecutions. This is crazy, I'm just telling you. This is insane what's happening. People need to pay attention. We can't let them get away with this. This is a new corporate playbook by this industry to go after successful human rights lawyers who hold them accountable for their pollution. Cut! Okay. (laughs) I'm interrupting him because the good news is, thanks to people like you, Leslie, Katie, and a, a bunch of people, we have reached a tipping point we're at a tipping point. I put on my cafe, only because I normally do, but also because it's, his case is actually very like the Israel-Palestine. Uh, I don't call it a debate because it's not, but it, it, it's now become a conversation and it's a public conversation. And we are reaching a tipping point in that conversation as well. Well, particularly with the to, to speak about the law for a minute, with Abby Martin's um, win in Georgia yeah. day before yesterday. The Katie Halper show bump. You know, I gotta say, just kidding. Yeah, <laughs> very very difficult for a federal judge to sit on the bench and with any credibility at all say. Mm, no, we find for the Israeli government in this case, it's perfectly okay for them to prevent a well-known and accredited journalist from making a speech at a university in a center in one of our great states, you know. So that is huge, but that's a small part. I've been involved in that conversation for many, many years as well now. But we are now beginning to see a light at the end of the tunnel where our side of the conversation can no longer be crushed by the weight of money pouring from the other. In the case of this, the money was coming from the Ministry of Strategic Affairs in Tel Aviv. In the case of him, 
is coming from Chevron Corporation, but they're two big, powerful entities who want to maintain the status quo. And we are not going to let that happen. We the people, I'm looking at the camera again now, because why are you so important? All of you, everybody now who is joining together to fight these extraordinary inequities within the world that that belongs, if it belongs to anyone, I mean, all right, Let's give the bugs a vote too. What about the cicadas that I keep looking for every evening? It's going to be like billions and billions of them. I haven't seen any yet, but I will welcome them when they come. But, you know, this is our planet. And if we if we don't all come together and work cooperatively, these motherfuckers are going to destroy it. Just tear it, tear the heart of it and throw it away. So this is hugely important, what's going on tonight and every night. Sorry, Steve, and I interrupted you there. Oh, no, that's exactly right. And, you know, yeah, I mean, we're all in this together. We are. We're all in it together. We are in it together. And, and with regard to the Ecuador case, I mean, the support that people of Ecuador have gotten, as well as myself personally and my family over the last two or three years, is just extraordinary. I mean, it's like it's blown up. You know, if Sherman had just kept the status quo as it existed three years ago, no one would know my name. Right. I mean, it's just instead they lock me up and like everyone's like, what the F? This can't happen. And like that's the problem which I noticed with Chevron and a lot of these big fossil fuel companies. They only have one speed. It's like pedal to the metal. Like they don't know how to pull it back off the floor and calibrate their speed. So like pound them, pound them, pound them all the time, you know. This is something, Stephen, that gives us our power yeah. is that they are all, all of them on their side of all of these arguments are burdened by something which I call primal disdain. They believe themselves to be superior. The white man believes himself to be superior to all the people, all the brown people whose land he plundered and settled all over the world for the last In their mind, 600 years. Sorry, I'll stop. No, just as an example of that very point. I mean, in the Amazon of Ecuador, like if you ask Chevron, like you dumped all this toxic waste, they don't even deny it. But they say, no, 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 we elevated the country of Ecuador because we got oil out of the ground. Per capita income in Ecuador went from, you know, $500 a year to $3,000 a year during the time we were there. We, we helped Ecuador. I mean, Ecuador grew. In the meantime, the people where they operated are dying, can't get clean water. They literally admitted to, this is crazy, they admitted to dumping 16 billion, billion with a B, gallons, of benzene-laden, cancer-causing toxic waste into waterways, fresh waterways, the most beautiful, pristine, delicious water. It's in the Amazon, relied on by thousands of people to survive, and they poisoned it all. It was a mass industrial poisoning. And if they do, we actually helped Ecuador. We planted trees on the highways in Quito. When we were there, I remember turning to my missus, Camila, and we looked at each other and I looked out the window, just driving to the places that we visited and all the pits and the whatever and the tour. And what I was saying, I said, I don't know how much money Texaco and Chevron made out of this operation that went on for 30 years. But looking around, it doesn't look like much of it filtered back to the local people. You can guess how much filtered back? Fuck all. As we know, because that's not their job. Their job is to represent their shareholders 
go in, steal everything that they can, pay nothing for it, and leave. That's their job, and that's what they're required to do by the law. Well, let me say that. The United States of America. Yeah. Maximize the bottom line for their shareholders. That is their only responsibility. They have no moral responsibility or humane or, or no responsibility as human beings at all. So. But I will say this to bring it back to what we said earlier. Yeah. I mean, yes, that is their fiduciary duty under the law to maximize return for shareholders, but they can't do it by violating the law. And this is where lawyers come in yeah. to say, you can't do it this way. You have to pay for your pollution. But the crazy part is once that happened and we were successful, they still didn't pay. And they bought off a pocket of the New York federal judiciary to try to remove the main lawyer from the scene. That is me. I mean, as difficult as this is for me and my family, I have a 14 year old son, wife, Laura, Matthew, um, you know, another way to look at it is the people in Ecuador have been deprived of the their choice of a lawyer. I mean, I've worked with these folks for 25 plus years and I'm locked up. I can't visit them. I can't do my job. I can't go to Canada and force the judgment. So, you know, they have to comply with the law. And the crazy thing is when they agree to a case and lose a case, they still try not to comply with the law. They didn't, they didn't manage to buy off everybody because the, the Southern District of New York District Attorney refused to take the case to prosecute you for contempt of court on behalf of Judge Kaplan. Right. He, he, they said no, we're not, this is, which is why they had to get this uh, other firm of lawyers to do it. So they're not all corrupt. We know Kaplan, Louis A. Kaplan, is corrupt. He's in Chevron's pocket. He's a major shareholder, and he acts for them without fear or favor. He does whatever he does. He's the judge who who sat on the bench in the RICO trial where Stephen was found guilty of being a gangster. And and now he has an acolyte. She is also bought and paid for. I'm sorry, but she is. And she needs calling out. These are disgusting, corrupt people who should not be allowed a place in the judiciary in the United States of America that purports to stand up for the rule of law and for human rights and all the rest of it. We Obviously, we know that they don't really believe in all that shit, but nevertheless. And it's also stunning to remember that, Stephen, you are a Harvard-educated lawyer. You're a lawyer. You have access to lawyers. Um, and this is, you know, they're doing this to you and you are relatively, obviously compared to Chevron, you're not a powerful person, but you know, there are a lot of people with a lot less access than you are, than you have. I mean, you know, so the people, like you were saying, the people in Ecuador and, and, and this is just a case we're hearing about, but it's this kind of corporate, you know, totally relentless, like you were saying, um, full court press, uh, this is only one of the cases that we hear about and it's, It's systemic, but it still is stunningly unprecedented and unique. Part of the reason the tide is turning is that Stephen has the support of some of the greatest legal minds and litigators that the United States has probably ever seen, people like Martin Garbus, who was in court arguing, but who last week eventually, along with the rest of Stephen's legal team, went, we're leaving now. There's no point in us putting up a defense because yeah, you've already made your mind up and and it's a waste of time, which I think was exactly the right thing to do. Yeah. I didn't I didn't testify. I mean, she basically said I couldn't even defend myself. You know, she she said the only issue at the trial was whether I 
didn't give them my computer. And if I didn't, I'm guilty. But hold on a second. The reason I didn't give it is because I sought appellate review. She wouldn't even let me explain that. So obviously it wasn't criminal what I did, but she will convict me and try to put me in jail. By the way, I need support. <laughs> That's another thing. And if people can help, go to the, you can learn about the case. Go to a website called DonzigerDefense.com, D-O-N-Z-I-G-E-R, Defense, and you can join our campaign. We'll, get, we'll give you email updates. You can donate to the Legal Defense Fund if you feel like it. We, it takes a lot of funds to deal with this monster. And uh, just join our, our movement. We've had 24,000 people who've signed up. And, you know, it's not like I'm without support. I mean, Roger is here and Susan Sarandon, Daryl Hannah, Marianne Williamson, Danny Glover, Sting, Trudy, you know, so I have support in that world. I have support of 68 Nobel laureates. I have thousands of lawyers around the world, but like these judges are so dug in and they won't give me a jury and they just have engineered this whole process to deny me my rights where I could actually explain myself and I'm going to be convicted. I think we have a great appeal they're going to try to put me in jail while my appeal is being heard, which takes about a year and a year and a half. So I'm hoping they don't put me in jail and we're going to generate a lot of people to ask them not to put me in jail. But I, I expect they will try to put me in jail. When this, well, this donate moment goes by, I find increasingly that I have to make this little speech. It's very, very short. Why don't you give him money? You're a rich pop star. Why are you asking us to donate money? Because I've fucking done it. I'm up to here with it. Trust me, I have. And he would tell you if his lips weren't sealed. But we need your help. This has to be, we need your help as well. This can't just be me and a couple of other people doing it. No, it's true. And I want to say this. Because I probably the last month I've gotten hundreds of donations, average of thirty dollars. People give three dollars, five dollars, ten dollars. I mean, give what you can, but like the important thing is get in this because this goes way beyond me. It goes so far beyond me. It does. We need to stop this from happening to me so it doesn't happen to anyone else. I mean, we can't have corporations prosecuting. The people who do the frontline work to save the planet. And that's what's happening in my case. We can't let it happen. We can't let corporations take control of a, a criminal prosecution in the United States of America. Yeah. I mean, it's bad enough when, look, the DOJ has a lot of unchecked power, okay, that needs to be looked at. But like when a corporation gets that power and deprives someone of his liberty, by the way, I'm the only person in this entire country charged with a misdemeanor held in pretrial detention, and today is day 659, almost two years. Even for one day, one day would be the beginning of it. 650. Right. Yeah, I get charged it as a maximum sentence of 180 days in prison. I'm 659 days. The, the longest sentence ever given a lawyer convicted of this is 90 days of home confinement. What the hell is going on here? It's because Chevron's prosecuting me, and the judge is a Chevron-linked judge. It's, it's really scary. And by the way, they hide it behind the normal processes. I mean, people have so much, people have so much kind of ingrained faith and justice in our federal judiciary just because of the way we've been raised. And it is a good judiciary or has been for many years, but it's gotten increasingly to, gone to the right uh, in recent years with, you know, Trump just really tipped the scales way to the right. And 25% of federal judges were appointed by Trump. You see what's happened to our Supreme Court. It's a different kind of thing now. Our federal judiciary is not what it used to be. 
And people need to recognize that, that there's a reason that the Koch brothers and these corporate funders and the Chevrons of the world and the Exxons of the world have donated massive sums of money to the Federalist Society, to the Judicial Crisis Network, to take control of this last unelected branch of the federal government that really should be the last line of defense for individual rights. Instead, in my case, it's been weaponized to attack individual rights and create a human rights violation right here in Manhattan. So people need to pay attention. Our judiciary is under siege by these forces. I'm not saying every judge is bad, really. There's a lot of great judges in America. Please, I'm not saying that. But judges now have more power than ever before. And if they don't abide by the framework of the rule of law, as I think is happening in my case, real abuses can take place. And they are. Yeah. And I put up your website again, but I also just wanted to ask if you could talk about what's happening in this photo. So this is a really striking photo that people may have seen, because I think that people, because there's such a legal outrage, understandably, and it's very important to focus on what's happening here. So there isn't the precedent, but the other story, right? And and this is the story you tell, obviously, but what is happening in this photo, which is from when, the 90s, when you were in Ecuador? This photo was taken on October 21st, 2003. This was the first day of the trial against Chevron. You know, Chevron had, had tried for a decade plus to, you know, their first line of defense is we don't want a trial. You know, once you put, get them in trial, they're embarrassed, they're held accountable to a great degree. So this is the first day of the trial in Ecuador on the street outside the courthouse. The women I'm talking to are from the Wawrani indigenous group. People had traveled, you know, two days sometimes by foot, canoe, walking, bus, just to get to this little town, which by the way was created by Texaco because this is the the place on Kofan indigenous territory where they drilled their very first well. So because that's where they found oil, they built a whole town around it, which they named Sour Lake after their headquarters town in Sour Lake, Texas. They used Lago Lago. So this was a very important day on so many levels for the people. It was an important day for me personally. I was honored to be in this position, you know, and it was just mind-blowing. I mean, I I couldn't believe after 12 years we actually were able to get this trial started and that so many people had turned out from around the Amazon to attend it. And I will say this, this was at lunchtime. In the morning session, there was hardly anyone in court and I couldn't understand it because the protest started late and the courtroom was in the back of this building and as the morning wore on, I started to hear these these protest chants. I'm like, oh my God, the people have come. But no one came into court. So at lunch, it, it occurred to me that these women and many others didn't think they had the right to enter the courtroom. I had to say, you know what, this is your trial follow me into the building. And they followed me in and went into court. Now, standing between us and the building was a SWAT team of Ecuadorian army officers, heavily armed, who were put there by Chevron and the powers that be in Ecuador to intimidate the people into not coming into the courtroom. Fascinating day. And any other stories? Like you worked with, what is his name, the the lawyer? Pablo Fajardo. Yeah, that's another thing I'd like to mention is this isn't my case. People are saying, This case was prosecuted in Ecuador by a a team of fabulous Ecuadorian lawyers, Pablo Fajardo, Juan Pablo Sanz, Julio Prieto, uh, Alejandro Ponce Villasis. I mean, my role was like to help them and to raise money so they could pay 
case expenses and to give them ideas and to make sure Chevron's lawyers in the U.S. were not abusing the process. And, you know, I had a kind of a larger role. I, I never appeared in court in Ecuador. I'm not an Ecuadorian lawyer, but I was down there a lot. I live in New York and I've been there 250 times. So on that day with that other picture, I was sitting with our Ecuadorian counsel at counsel's table. But I want to be very clear. This case was won by Ecuadorian lawyers. And there's a documentary, Crude, right, about this case. Yeah. And there's a scene in it where Pablo is talking about, he, he's visiting a grave, and he mentions that his brother was killed and tortured. And then he says that he they heard, the family heard from someone who was in the military, that they meant to come for him. I remember a time in these years when Pablo, uh, that happened to his brother. I mean, look, no one knows who killed him, but... Sure. Right. You know, we have our theories. And Pablo then started to sleep in different houses every night and carry a gun. And, you know, several members of our team were threatened. Alejandro Ponce Villasiz, Pablo's a lawyer from that region. Okay, Alejandro's more from the elite Quito law circles. And he was sleeping in the middle of the night, five in the morning. He gets a call. He's sleeping next to his wife. And, and the person says, I just want to be sure your alarm is activated. I mean, you know, that's like a death threat. And, and these little things like that kept happening. And they were designed to intimidate us and get us to drop the case. And, you know, but Pablo's situation was the most extreme because he, he had to sleep in different houses every night. Like, I'm up here in New York hearing about it. We eventually went to the Inter-American Court of Human Rights and got a, an order to the Ecuadorian government to provide security protection for our legal team in Ecuador. But, like, this is how crazy it is. They didn't want this protection because they didn't trust their own government to actually protect them as opposed to just follow them around and tell Chevron what they were doing. So like, it just was a mess. And like the only protection you really have is the people. You just have to put it out there and trust that you have enough support that they're not going to get away with being able to kill you. And, you know, there were death threats and it was intense. And, and, you know, Look, when you take on entrenched interests, I'll never forget Alejandro told me one day, you know, maybe I was a little naive. I actually believe in the law. My apologies. Um, you know, I went to Harvard Law School. They taught me about the law. I'm like, I want to be a lawyer and help people. And one day we're driving around Ecuador and Alejandro says to me, you know, we're talking about this craziness and the fear. And he says, Steve, you need to understand that this case isn't just a pollution case. You're challenging 500 years of history. And, you know, whether it's the Spaniard, the Spanish conquest or what I call the Texaco Chevron conquest, it's all the it's all part of the same multi-century legacy of outsiders coming in, oppressing the people, stealing their riches and leaving all the toxic waste behind. And, and, and they end up living in poverty while all the money flows north and enriches, in this case, Chevron shareholders, you know, and I'm like, God, that's interesting. I never really thought of it that way. Again, because like I'm just like every day I'm a lawyer. I'm putting one foot in front of another. Oh, we got to file this motion. Got to file that motion. Deal with this problem. And he's like, you don't understand what this means. And, you know, if I may, talking too much, I just want to tell this one story. Yeah, of course, please. When we first went to Ecuador. It was because Chevron wanted the case in Ecuador. We didn't want it there. We wanted to try it in the U.S. Okay. So we went down there. We got all these Ecuadorian lawyers and the case started and I went to see the uh, union leader, the union of oil workers. Ecuador has its own oil company. 
And I, I went to the head of the oil workers union, very powerful union official, just to tell them about the case. I didn't want them to be threatened by what we were doing because they were relying on the industry for jobs. And he looked at me like I was crazy. And I'll never forget, he said to me, you can't win this case. And I said, why? And he said, because you can't beat Texaco in this country. Never happened. He goes, there's not a judge in this country who will rule against Texaco. Because if they do, they will be killed. And I walked out of that office. This was like 2003. The case was just starting down there. And I looked at the guy I was with and I said, are we fucking fools? Like, are we just idiots? And at that point, I realized that for the people of Ecuador to win the case, they needed to not just play inside the courtroom. They needed to, like, mobilize public opinion in the whole country so that people understood that an American company had come down and essentially destroyed their environment. And we did do that over several years to the point where judges were actually able to not be so scared of Chevron that they could rule on the facts and the law, which is their duty. And we ended up winning the case. But that meeting taught me a huge lesson, which is right now there's no one in Ecuador who actually thinks the indigenous peoples have the power to win a legal case over Texaco. But we changed that. By the way, that's why they're so mad at me, right? I mean, a lot of my work was dedicated to giving people who were victimized by this awful company access to courts, access to justice, access to a remedy, as is their right under international law and under the laws of their own country. Those are basic human rights. When people are wronged in this world, they have a right to go to court and seek redress. Okay, that's what, isn't that what this is about? When they wouldn't walk into the courtroom that first day, they didn't know about this right that they had, that they could go to court. Come on into court. We went up and they sat and watched and got empowered. And we did that year after day after day, year after year. Okay, now decade after decade, unfortunately. They hate that. Their business model counts on people not getting into court and much less winning cases. But Stephen, that is why this is part of the reason why your story is so important and why this conversation we're having is so important. Because it's part of the conversation which is asking the people of the United States of America a very, very simple question, which is, do you want to be the people that you've been pretending to be for all these years, that you care about democracy, liberty, First Amendment rights, justice, blah, 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 the rule of law, and all of that kind of thing? Or are you prepared to allow this situation to tip into a place where people just accept we're fucking America, and if you don't do what we want, we're going to kill you? And that is the action. That's what it is, which is what your foreign policy is all about. So the people of America at some point are going to have to find their voice, join the fucking choir, sing out loud. No, that is not what we want. We don't want to be that hoodlum holding a gun to people's head and going, do what America says or we're going to kill you. That happened all, that's Reagan, Bush, that's Clinton, that's the past. No, we don't want it anymore. And let's not pretend that that wasn't going on from the turn of the fucking 20th century until now, because it was. The American Fruit Company is the beginning of it all and that foreign policy. And no, you haven't all been, you know, 
riding white horses and and the cavalry coming to rescue democracy. You've been out there stealing and plundering, and you, the people of America, are going to have to decide at some point that is not who we want to be, and it's not who we want to be seen to be either. Well, it is who you are seeing to be because it's what you do, Joe Biden. So stop doing it, please. Here, just start here. Start here in Palestine, please. That was that was fabulous, Roger. And, and let me just say this. I hate to keep talking about myself. I have no choice, you know, but I want to say this. What's happening to me, I believe, is a major litmus test for the Biden administration in, in terms of the climate issue, right? Like, dude, you have an American human rights lawyer locked up without trial on a misdemeanor for almost two years. Okay. I spent the bulk of my career protecting the lungs of the planet and indigenous groups who, in Ecuador, who are the frontline guardians of our planet. How the hell can our country be doing this to a human rights lawyer? So I want to ask you personally, Mr. Biden, do something about it, okay? Your attorney general needs to take back this corporate prosecution from Chevron and take control of my prosecution. I am begging the Department of Justice to prosecute me. I promise you, you, you've never heard of a lawyer in U.S. history say those words. I repeat, I am begging the Department of Justice to prosecute me. I cannot be prosecuted by a private corporation that I crushed in court in Ecuador. Please, if you care about climate, protect the rights of lawyers who do the frontline work, take the case back, obviously dismiss it. You already turned it down once, dismiss it again. But whatever you do, take it out of the hands of Chevron. It is so wrong for a private citizen to be prosecuted by a corporation. Stop it. And I'm asking President Biden personally to do something about it. Yeah, obviously people know where I stand on the Israel issue and I don't want to, because it's still divisive, I don't want Stephen to lose support over this so we can clip this out of it. But I do think that, first of all, it was stunning. You said if you didn't exist, Chevron would have to create you, right? Yeah. And I, I mean, I thought the same thing that Roger did, where it's like, oh, Joe Biden literally describing Israel. But I do think that another comparison, and Roger alluded to this, is the lack of humility and the lack of almost like self-preservation or self-awareness, which allows people, governments, corporations, individuals to act with such reckless abandon and disregard that they don't even realize that they're creating bad PR for themselves on an optics level, on a PR level versus going after a lawyer who, and you also have to be, you happen to be very media savvy. So. Well, thank you. I mean, so are you. That's why you have a show and I don't. But let me just say this. No, but I mean, you're a lawyer. I mean, I, it's you, you have a very good sense of that. And not just for yourself, but I remember in this documentary, Crude, you're talking about how to get Pablo on this. You got him in Vanity Fair. I that's, mean, and this is. David, that's why she's drinking whiskey out of a Coca Cola bottle. <laughs> I need some. Sadly, this is some zero calorie yeah, yeah, Irish yeah, ginger yeah. ale. I had to bring up something Irish, uh, Roger, to, you know, because we yeah, all have to deal with our, did because our we colonialism. Love the Irish, yeah. Particularly in recent days, because we exactly blow up. You know what's funny about the media? I mean, we've always, when you represent people with no money and very little power, you've got to leverage everything you can. Okay. So you got to create your own leverage. And we always felt the media was part of our plan to put leverage on Chevron. So they claim that our entire media campaign, 
from the beginning of the case as part of an extortion, an attempt to extort money from them, that we don't have a First Amendment right to even do media. I mean, that's truly their theory on this particular case. And the irony, of course, is the corporations, I mean, they have six PR firms. They use the PR firm that did the Swift Boat campaign against John Kerry. They did the Swift Boat campaign against John Kerry, against me, six PR firms. But no, we're not allowed to do, to engage the media while they hire six law firms to put their point of view out and try to kill every, everyone who might even think about doing a story about what's going on with us. So, Roger and Stephen, I just want to ask you, the number one thing that I'm noticing about you is you're both so positive and upbeat. Roger, you've been fighting the same battles for forever. Stephen, you've been locked up. Where does that come from? We're winning! (laughs) We're winning, winning, brother. We're winning. We have reached and gone beyond the tipping point. The people are rising up and voicing their voices coming out. That's so beautiful to hear. I was doing one of these webinars the other day, and I can't remember even now. Oh, I know. It was Max with Max and Aaron and and Ben Norton on Uh, Grey Zone. Yeah, I think it was on Grey Zone. Yeah. But anyway, it was was either them or somebody else. And somebody brought up the concert for Palestine and asked me about it. And I went, Yeah, I've been having this conversation every. 10 minutes for the last 15 years, you know, since I've been kind of involved. And uh, I keep saying to people, you know, uh, I'm not sure we're quite ready and blah, blah. I think we may be ready. And I actually said so. I've forgotten the journalist's name. Anyway, she wasn't. She was She was from Al Jazeera. She was an Al Jazeera journalist. And she keeps writing to me about it now saying, you said maybe. And I did. I said, maybe next summer. Before I go on the road, I'm going on the road in the middle of July. Before that, maybe it's time for 500,000 people in Central Park, everyone holding a Palestinian flag, standing up and saying, this bullshit has got to stop. Either we believe in human rights, Paris 1948, fledgling United Nations, or we don't. If we do then we have to tell Israel to come to heel and stop murdering our brothers and sisters. And she's right. And I think it might be next summer. I really do. I really think it could. When you see all the demonstrations all over, there were 200,000 people in my hometown, London, in, in London, three days ago, last Saturday, you know, and you look at that and you think, wow. I mean, we all know that G.W. Bush and the execrable Tony Blair took no notice when there were 20 million, over 25 million people all over the world demonstrated to prevent the illegal, disastrous invasion of Iraq. They went ahead and did it anyway because they're criminals and they're idiots as well. George W. Bush, Tony Blair, criminal sociopathic morons. We, the people, knew it was crazy, and we told them, and they went ahead and did it anyway. But this, 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 no. We are, we, okay, we will come, we'll come together in New York, in, in Central Park next summer. There you are, I've said it again. Now I'm going to have to try and organize it. And it won't be easy because people in my industry are still scared shitless of standing up. I promise you, I know I've written 
hundreds of letters to people going, hey, brother, it's a picket line. You know, let's not cross it. Mm, it's a very complicated. No, it isn't complicated. There's nothing complicated about it. It's a rapist and a, and a victim. That's it. It's a vic- It's an oppressor and some oppressed. That is it. That nothing could be more simple. It's black and white, and that's all there is to it. Or right, I'll stop shouting again. Now. <laughs> no, it's great. Who's this? This is Nina. Do you have any questions? Um, this is my friend Nina, who um, it was a Bernie fan, then decided that she wanted. You know, she did support Biden because she thought he was better than Trump. But do you have any questions or comments about Israel Palestine, Nina? No. No, okay. <laughs> um, what about the rainforest and saving the planet? Because that's what Stephen is trying to do. He defended, there's this really bad company called Chevron, and they basically dumped all this stuff. Well, they- I can tell you about it, but I don't even know. I don't know if I can, like, okay, let me just, okay. Well, let me just finish. Can I just finish telling what happened? He went and he, and he's, and don't, don't touch the keyboard, please. He went and he helped people defend themselves, protect themselves from a company, a bad company that wanted to make money and they're an oil company and they wound up, they poisoned the water. They put things in the water and then people would drink from the water and they got sick and they would get really sick and some of them died. And so he sued this company. He was one of the people who helped but sue the company. Why did they make the water um, why did they, poison? Yeah, it's a good question. What? Why, why did they poison? Why they poison the water? This is good. You can explain it to a smart six-year-old, and then very good clip for the world to watch. That's a really good question. But the, funda- the fundamental mm-hmm. reason, as Roger says, is you know what this means? Hold Money. Money. It was cheaper to poison the water than it would be to not poison the water. In other words, if it cost them ten dollars to to pull out the oil and poison the water, and if and $15 to pull out the oil and not poison the water. They just chose to poison the water. So they essentially chose to kill people for money. And that's what happened. I know that's a difficult concept for a six-year-old. And I, I want to say... Why would they poison the water? Why would they get money if they poison Right, so why, the did, why was it cheaper for them, she's saying? Why was it cheaper for them? Yeah, well, why because- would they get paid to poison the water? Yeah, it's not that they got paid. It's just they didn't have to spend money to clean the water. So, like, when the oil comes up, it's 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 poison. You know, oil can kill you if you drink it. So, to to make sure it doesn't get in the environment, you got to build a system, a machine, to clean it. And they never built the machine because that would have cost money. So they saved that money, and in exchange, they poisoned the water supply for thousands of people, and many have died. I will say, I have a question for Nina. Can I ask? Yeah. Yeah, of course, Nina. There's a question for you. Yeah. Nina, can you imagine a world where people are rich and they have no money? Well, what? Rich and have no money? Mm Mm-hmm. That's weird. Why (laughs) would they be rich and have no money? The explanation, Nina, is the people living in the rainforest have the forest. They have food and water and shelter and clean air and incredible resources, medicines. Monkeys. Monkeys, jaguars, birds. And they don't need money to be happy and to be rich. Think about that. 
Yeah, and this is actually, you want to see something? This is where we're talking about. These are some photos. And and that was a really important question you, know, you asked, which was, it's not that they're getting paid to poison it. They're saving money, right? It's like, I'm trying to think of an example. Oh. It would be like, instead of um, bringing, let's some, what's something your mom or dad, I'm trying to think of something like, okay, your cat, right? If you, you don't have to bring your cat to the vet, but when your cat's sick, you do, right? It's not yeah. the greatest example. So it's like, if you didn't take care of your cat, because it was cheaper not to. It's a bit like if you've got a ton of garbage in the kitchen that you haven't thrown out, and instead of buying a garbage can and paying somebody to come and take it to a landfill and put it, you just throw it in the neighbor's garden. That's good. Yeah, that's yeah. Right. And then they get sick. Listen, what Roger just said explains why when he talks, he has 80,000 people listening. And when I talk, I have my wife and son. <laughs> who must be Matthew wow they must be sick of you no offense i mean but you're he's a, nina he's did i tell you this part he's he can't leave his home because these this bad company right so he made this bad company pay they went to court and they said yeah you really did do you harm these people you harm these people comment just came up there saying six-year-old gets it mainstream media doesn't get it. Yeah, in fact, yeah. Nina, we should make videos it. together where we explain Good things. Comment, brother. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder why they don't get it. I tell you why, because Chevron advertising all their newspapers right. and on their television shows and whatever. Why do you think the New York Times won't weigh in on this issue? I know that's the thing that's ridiculous. Is it's not even considered. It's so clearly a newsworthy story. Or one of the think other. This would be a. I think a story written about my situation under house arrest would be um, read with great interest by the New York Times demographic. I don't know why they don't cover it's it. It's ridiculous that they haven't written about it. I mean, what, The Intercept has written about it? Nation, uh, Gizmodo, right. I mean, uh, Chris Hedges. I mean, it's gotten really good coverage all over the place other than the big media. I mean, I've had, I've had journalists fly 4,000 miles from Europe and from Germany and Sweden, Norway to come interview me. And the New York Times is literally a 30 minute walk from my apartment. They won't show up. So this and I want to show everyone, including Nina, this is you see that slimy stuff. That's oil. Right. And that's actually, Stephen, this will be, can you can you narrate what we're seeing for yeah, viewers? So that's that. the pipe that the oil gets in from. So but how does it get to the river? It's not if it's not exactly near the river. Let me explain. This is the pipe that is connected up the hill to one of the waste pits with all the oil and oil residue in it. And they flow out that residue through this pipe. And it gets done. this is like a little creek. And it just gets dumped into that creek when it rains. And then the people who live in that area who have to drink the water out of the creek or out of a nearby river into which the creek flows, they get poisoned as a result. So, you know, what the pipe proves is this was a deliberate design. I mean, the pipe didn't just end up there. They put the pipe there to run off the oil, poisoned oil and oil waste into the waterways that people were drinking out of. And at the beginning of this exercise, Texaco told the local people that oil was like honey, literally. Vitamins, like vitamins. It was full of vitamins and good for you, and it would only be good for the land. Do you see her hands, that? Yeah. That's from the oil, right? Oh, my God. Yeah, the exposures. The exposure. Yep. And then here the people are swimming. Yeah, this is, this is how people Washing their clothes, wash I mean, their clothes and, and take their baths 
Um, you see the, the oil pipes and, and the I pipes mean, all, of this, all of this is contaminated to some degree or another. And this is from a really great slideshow I found on Flickr from Rainforest Action Network. So look again, you see the people swimming in this water and it's going to, it can make them sick. And this is, remember when Stephen said, can you imagine being rich without money? So look at the this kind of amazing clothing that she's wearing and jewelry. I see. Rich without money. You can buy things, but you don't have a lot of money. Yeah, you can buy or you can you can make create them. things, make, make them. Yeah, I don't think she bought they make them. Oh, I don't they like, buy that stuff. They make it. Like if there's a mayor or something, it doesn't have to be, um, the mayor doesn't have to be rich to be the mayor. Oh, I see. She's talking about the need to have to take money out of elections so that you don't have to be rich to run. Is that what you're saying, <laughs> Nina? Yeah. Like, <laughs> to be mayor. To be mayor. Mayor, oh, yeah. I see what she's saying. Yeah. Oh. You're saying that about, all right, Nina, this has been amazing. Your mom's going to kill me. So any final words? Okay. The last words I'm going to say is, this is the best time I've ever had. Oh. Wow. We're going to have to have you back. my best time during an interview on Ecuador I've ever had. So we mixed yeah. two. This is great. Say thanks. This, say, this say. is right up there with mine. Say, 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 thank you, Leslie, Stephen, and Roger. It's great to meet you. I like this. Do you hear that, everyone? Say it again. Do you know what? I've got one little shout now. If I can get a word in between Nina. Sorry? Deb Harland. Oh, Deb Harland. Yes, please. That's it. I've finished. Deb Harland. So say, say, Nina was saying bye, Stephen, Roger, and Leslie. And do you like the Katie Halper show? I like the Katie Halper show. Okay, great. So you're going to you're going to come on next week too, right? I might. I don't know. Okay. Thanks, Nina. Bye. 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 She's named after Nina Simone and then we'll get her brother on too who's really great. A big oh, fan of front. Right um, there. How old is he? Uh Arthur, you're 10? Yeah. yeah. Anything you want to say about the rainforest, um the Amazon or Israel Palestine? What about Arsenal Football Club? And what about Israel-Palestine? And then with Israel-Palestine, I'm not supposed to talk about Oh, I see. Okay. okay. I get it. Don't, so, don't say, so don't say anything there. All right. But, uh, uh, okay. Thank you. All right. We'll get him another time. Uh, you see the pressure, the Hasbara. And, and Roger, you noticed the pig up there oh, for yeah. obvious reasons. <laughs> yes. My favorite, actually, though, I, I disagree with your pig symbolism because my dad and I, um, we don't eat red meat. We don't eat pork or beef because we love pigs because they're so cute and smart. They and are hypoallergenic, cute. But. I couldn't <laughs> agree with you more. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry that I've portrayed the pig in numerous theatrical times and places as, as being a somewhat negative influence. Right. Pors- you're porcophobic. I apologize to Porky there for that. Yeah. <laughs> so I do yeah. think he might cut down on some of his intake of fatty products from the look <laughs> of him. He's a bit porcine. Yeah, he is looking a little piggish. <laughs> yes. <laughs> when I was uh, when I was like 11, I wrote up a petition to legalize the adoption of Vietnamese potbelly pigs in New York City because you weren't allowed to have them. It failed, but that was an early activism example. I'm not sure that you were right in that. I think it's a bit cruel to keep a Vietnamese pot-bellied pig in an apartment in New York. Right? Yeah, I mean, in retrospect, I think that it could you could justify it if they were otherwise not going to be homed. Well, you 
you can, yeah, all right. I'm not going to go there. Yeah. <laughs> this, yeah. A lot of cultural questions. A guest on your show. Right. <laughs> so this was great and so thankful for you and giving your time. And we could t- talk for way longer, but I know that you have a, Stephen, a wife and a, a son to go back to who haven't seen you probably in, you know, what, an hour? Um, <laughs> I have sweet potatoes burning in the oven. There you go. Oh, yeah. okay. We're looking forward to a night where we're going to just sort of move from the left side of the couch to the right side and then back again. Get this man's ankle bracelet. Yeah, can you show us the ankle bracelet? You horrible, corrupt federal judges, you. Look, guys. You should be ashamed of yourselves. I hope you're blushing. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. Because you're a flight risk, I guess. I mean, I will say it was nice solidarity for you to have a bunch of other people stay at home for a while. Um, yeah, that doesn't, that's not working anymore. I know. Yeah. But yeah, this was, well, this was amazing. And just want to say, then we'll end on a serious note, but I got to say Bob Balaban is in one of the funniest scenes I've ever seen in a film, Waiting for Guffman. Have you guys seen Waiting for Guffman? Very funny. All right. We're all going to look it up and watch it. We're going to look it up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, I really, I mean, the exonerated, and this again, it's like the how corrupt our legal system is that people have gone to the chair or lethal injection. My friend Clive Stafford-Smith is making a movie at the moment along the lines of The Exonerated, but it's actually about 10 specific men from Mississippi, I think all from Mississippi, who have been executed and since exonerated. So they're dead men who we now know were innocent. And he has interns going from England. I'm actually supporting two of them, I'm happy to say, they may even already be in Mississippi, and they're doing all the research that will be necessary to put this documentary together. Well, they should definitely come on the show. Again, imagine, I mean, you would know this obviously better than I would, Stephen, but people who are lawyers who represent people on death row, they don't have a ton of resources. So they're not going to be able to prove these cases usually, right? Like they're trying to stop another person from being executed. So we only know about like a percentage small percent make it into the public eye and you know the the exonerated was an incredible service but i mean where are the resources for the the death penalty defense lawyers there's like virtually no resources to investigate these 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 false convictions um such that the people can be exonerated i mean the most resources that are put into these cases usually come out of universities where they have these you know, these exoneration projects with students do the investigations, which can be enormously helpful. Right. But I mean, you know, don't even going. The whole criminal justice system is so asymmetrically structured to favor the powers that be. It's not, you know, it's it's just not a fair system for the most part. Yeah, it's disgusting. And this is the, the story I was talking about. Supreme Court won't block execution of man who fears excruciating death. Ernest Johnson sought death by firing squad, saying his brain damage leaves him at risk of severe and painful seizures if he's executed by lethal injection. But his appeals were rejected by a federal appeals court, and the Supreme Court declined to take up the case. You know, it was a 6-3 decision, and this, you know, this is the problem. Mitch McConnell stole a seat from Merrick Garland, and then... You know, they engineered, they stole a second seat when Amy Coney Barrett was put on. That should have been an appointment by Joe Biden. And the court is now 6-3 hard right, three centrist. You know, it's not like right, left. It's it's hard right, centrist, moderate right. And, you know, this court is not, does not reflect the 
diversity of opinion in the United States of America. To, to use to use elegant language, I could use yeah. harsh language, but I mean, you know, that this court is dangerous, in my opinion, to our effort to save the planet, first and foremost, because they will protect the hell out of the fossil fuel industry. And, you know, any kind of significant, meaningful economic change, you know, Medicare for all and national health plan, the things that need to happen to decrease income inequality, which is such an incredibly awful feature of our society, that court will probably not be on the side of the people. So, you know, we we have some serious challenges in this country, and I think the courts need to get a heck of a lot more focus. It's a supreme example, Stephen, isn't it? It's a supreme example of a fixed game, which is what it It is. is. But I mean, so I can tell you. Set up, dare I say, by your founding fathers, and and set up specifically for this reason. How do you think? Yeah, I mean, you, can't, you can't go into federal court now. I mean, as a human rights lawyer and an appeals court, you have a three judge panel. I mean, at a minimum, two are going to be out of the federalist society world, and if there's a, a liberal or a centrist, they're still often out of kind of the national security world. They're ex prosecutors there are no human rights lawyers on the federal bench that I know of. There's no, there's hardly any defense lawyers. I mean, it's all corporate lawyers and prosecutors. So when you do this kind of work in those courts, you're always facing a process that is structurally set up to disfavor the interests of your clients. And all waiting to eventually, even when it was a 5-4 court, to bolster a court that was going to be in favor of Citizens United and let corporate money flow into the political process, unhindered by even the waving of the scales of justice gently in front of their noses. They just went, fucking pile in, guys, buy it, buy it, buy your government. Good luck. I want to I want to tell all y'all I've really enjoyed this time with you. I Yeah, I, this is amazing. Yeah. Katie, you're awesome, and Leslie, it's an absolute pleasure to meet you. And Rod, pleasure to meet you too. Roger's a good friend, so this might sound biased, but he he doesn't even know this maybe. But I have deep, deep respect for Rogers. Obviously, he's a genius musician, but I have even deeper respect for his commitment to social justice and activism and his nerdiness. Wow, he's kind of funny too, right? Oh, that too. Yeah, yeah. Well, but Stephen, I want to let you go because I know you have another interview. In fact, someone else who has an interview. Yeah, thank you so much again. And thank we'll you, and come back, yeah. Everyone, if you want to learn more or help, go to donzigerdefense.com, donzigerdefense.com. See you guys later. Thanks so much. Bye. Thank, thank you so much. How do I get out of here? I'll kick you out. Okay. Just take the bracelet. Oh, sorry. I know, seriously. <laughs> can I go now, please? Yeah, you can go. I was going to ask you if you wanted to make fun of the attacks on Aaron Mate, like a, a minute-long clip of Aaron Mate being called a Russian agent, but... You don't have to do that. No, uh, Roger. I, want, I, I want to say I am Aaron Marte's. I'm not his biggest okay. fan because I know people three, four hundred pounds who are fans of Aaron. <laughs> but I'm pumped. So, Roger, thank you. I thought you'd want to know about this. Yeah, I do. Thanks again for listening to the Katie Helper Show. To hear the rest of my discussion with Roger Waters, including a discussion about the Young Turks and Aaron Mate, please go to Patreon. That's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. You can also find on Patreon an interview that I did with Thomas Frank. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. 
If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Halper, Nick Palm, Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time. 